Hello, this is Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to a very special edition of the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. I'm going to focus on Johnny Carson. Now, you may have heard the name Johnny Carson. Certainly, if you grew up in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, you actually know and have watched Johnny Carson. But he is known probably as the best talk show host in the history of American television. Uh, if you look at Walter Cronkite as the best news anchor, Johnny Carson is the best talk show host. Well, he had a very close associate and friend, his attorney, a man named Henry Bushkin, who he referred to on his show as the bombastic Bushkin. Well, Henry Bushkin wrote a book about Johnny Carson in 2013. He's in the process of writing another book about Carson. He's my guest on the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. If you want to know about Johnny Carson on air, and perhaps more interestingly, off air, watch this program. Sit back and enjoy and listen to Henry Bushkin as he talks about Johnny Carson. Well, I think it's a simple answer. His average audience was between 14 and 15 million a night. And today, if uh, Colbert or Jimmy Fallon get 3 million, that's a big deal. Henry Bushkin says there was a simple reason for why Johnny Carson was so successful. It was his ability to connect with others. Uh, it, it was Midwestern charm. It was the fact that uh, he let he let his guests shine. He didn't he didn't uh, upstage any of his guests. That's why they loved coming on the show because they get a fair shot at whatever their uh, audience was expecting. So I mean, he he was he was like a great hayseed from the Midwest with, with a sophisticated look at the world. For many of the most important years in Johnny Carson's life, Henry Bushkin was by his side. He was giving legal advice. He was also a very close friend. This story about the Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe Wimbledon match, the famous one from 1980, is a classic example of this. We had a fascinating time. I went with, you know, Bombastic Bushkin, Bombastic. my attorney. Mm -hmm. There is actually a Bombay, I call him that, but Henry Bushkin and his wife, Judy and Joanna, we went to the south of France, and we went up to Wimbledon to watch the finals. That match. And I want to tell you, that was one of the most exciting tennis matches between John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg I have ever seen in my life. Did you happen to I see watched it? it, just it was unbelievable. Just incredible. <laughs> to Wimbledon every year for 11 straight years, I think starting 1976, and, and we were there for essentially for every final. We used to go the second week of Wimbledon, and then we would go down to the south of France. And so the McEnroe-Borg matches uh, in, in tennis were, were classics. And Johnny and I were sort of friendly with McEnroe. And indeed, McEnroe bought his house in Malibu when Johnny decided to move to a bigger house. And so uh, at, at that particular Wimbledon, uh, uh, we, we went to a birthday party with, with McEnroe and his parents and some friends. And, and off camera, uh, he was he was like anybody else, unless 
unless something happened that bothered him, then he became the superstar <laughs> and got really annoyed. The first time that Henry Bushkin worked with Johnny Carson, the situation was quite strange to say the least. According to Bushkin, Carson believed his wife, his second wife, was having an affair with famous football player Frank Gifford. She had a separate apartment. He wanted to catch her. He needed some evidence for divorce. Bushkin was hired as a lawyer to join him and others as they raided the apartment. Well, that's why I was hired, uh, to, to simply be a lawyer going along on this, uh, I didn't even know what it was I was going along on, <clears throat> but being a young lawyer and interested in getting clients, I was willing to do most anything to get a big time client. And in this case, it meant going along with him while uh, he was planning to break into an apartment, uh, the report was it was his wife's apartment that she was keeping on the side. And so that's how I met him. He hired me, in effect, to go along on this uh, escapade. That Johnny Carson, obviously, is the Johnny Carson we didn't really get to see. Or, or on the air, clearly. But there was another side. Tell me about a little bit about the personal issues that he battled, the demons he battled, the awkwardness, those sorts of things. Well, you have to go back to his early days. Uh, I'm not sure if any people knew he served in the Navy in World War II. And uh, when his ship was torpedoed, it, it stopped, it went back to Guam for repairs. And while the ship was in Guam, uh, the sailors had boxing matches to keep to keep them occupied in the evenings. And and he, uh, he had 10 bouts while in Guam on the USS Pennsylvania. And as you know, as anybody knows, you're in a boxing match for 10, Ten three round bouts, you get hit in the head pretty good, any number of times. And in in the in the mid sixties, this was uh, maybe fifteen fifteen twenty years after these boxing matches, he started develop, developing headaches, uh, mood swings, uh, tempers, and. And I attribute that and, and several others to uh, traumatic brain injury, which uh, medically uh, it's known that, that this often happens 15 or 20 years after the incident, like with football players today. So uh, I think beginning in the late, mid late 60s, he started having these problems. And when I met him in 1970, those problems existed, except, of course, I didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it then. And with the advantage today of the internet and, and medical news and so on and everything you read about football players and, and their injuries, uh, I believe that, that Carson's mood swings that started late in his career in the, in the mid to, to late 60s 
was the cause of what many people today think were problems caused by his mother. Very interesting because you did at the time of your book talk about his mother and you told a story about how he sent her, I believe, on a 64-day trip with his father and never even got a thank you or whatever. Tell me a little bit about that. And could that well, maybe, yeah. it was, it was uh, in the days when American Express came out with their credit cards sometime in the 60s. And Johnny uh, gave his father a gold American Express card and said, here, I'm, you know, you got this trip. It was a 40-some-odd-day cruise, uh, maybe around the world, I don't know, but it was a 40-day cruise. And and uh, during those 40 days, he would occasionally mention to me that he's never heard from his parents. And I said, why don't you call the ship? The ship has phones. You could call. You could reach them. He says, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. I want them to call me and thank me. Okay. Eventually, eventually, he, he made a joke of it. He said, they, they better be on a ship like the Titanic that sunk, which is the reason I never heard from them. Uh, but actually, he never did hear from them. Uh, and his mother and father were very reluctant to give out compliments. It's just that was the Midwestern Gothic that uh, they grew up in. It is no secret that Johnny Carson battled alcoholism. However, at the time, not many people knew about it. It was kept very quiet. Well, yeah, uh, the drinking always existed early on but i believe starting again uh, shortly before i met him the drinking uh oftentimes was was a device to get rid of the headaches and the headaches in my opinion stemmed from <laughs> boxing matches that happened 20 years earlier johnny carson passed away he had at least 500 million dollars to his name However, he could have had far more had he not turned down many lucrative offers, primarily because he really didn't want to deal with a lot of other people in social settings. The more success the company Carson Productions had, the less he enjoyed it, because the more success we had required more of his time, and, and he was reluctant to devote any time other than to the Tonight Show. So uh, it was <laughs> success, obviously, is what anybody strives for. And it was counterintuitive with him because the success made him, uh, let's say, cranky, made him annoyed that he would have to go to a screening of a movie or he would have to go to a, a rehearsal of a new television show. And so eventually, uh, after I left, uh, the new lawyer, Ed Hookstratton, shut down the entire company. So this company that we started in 1980 had over 100 employees by 1987. And in 1988-89, he shut that company down. 
And, and going back to your earlier question about uh, Coca-Cola, we were offered $100 million in Coca-Cola stock in 1981 to sell the Carson Company to the Coca-Cola Company. And in 2022, that hundred that hundred million was worth about two point three billion. So <laughs> that's something that he passed on simply because he didn't want to go to board meetings and sit with people he didn't know. Henry Bushkin's first book on Johnny Carson was a national bestseller. He is going to publish a new book either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year called. It's Good to Be King, the story of Johnny Carson leading up to the years of fame. What happened to him that made this man who he was? I think, I think the thing that's most interesting to me is the things people don't know about Carson. Obviously, there's three or 4,000 Tonight Shows that still exist that are shown on Antenna TV and, and other networks. On Paramount Plus, you can get any Tonight Show you want to see. Uh, so his, his on-the-air record of 30 years is, is pretty much available, except the first 10 years or so is all gone because they never kept those tapes, those kinescopes. So... I think the most interesting thing about Carson is all those things early on that he that, that nobody knew about. For example, I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but in, in 1963, in 19, actually in 1964, he went to Yankee Stadium and he was pitching to Mickey Mantle with Yogi Berra catching, uh, and it was all filmed. And it was all on the Tonight Show with Mantle as a guest and Yogi Berra as a guest. But those those kinescopes don't exist anymore. Uh, flying with the Blue Angels, uh, <laughs> that that was something. He was a pilot. He was a licensed pilot. Uh, uh, getting into a ring with Muhammad Ali and, and, and scuffing it up with uh, boxing with Muhammad Ali in the early days. So uh, I've written a second book called Good to be King, which is uh, going to be published, I guess, at the end of this year or the beginning of next year, all about Carson's early days from the 1950s right up till the late 1960s. Uh, 1969, for example, he had an audience one night that was bigger than the and the Academy Awards and the Super Bowl combined. That's how big the show was in 1969 before I ever met him. So when I met him in 1970, he was a big star. Okay, And of course, I knew nothing about his background because we had the Encyclopedia Britannica in those days. You know, There was no internet, there was no research tool that, that one could find out about one's history. But today, with all the uh, uh, devices available, I thought a second book would be sort of cool because it would, it would be telling the audience and the reader everything they didn't know about Carson. So 
that's what I'm most excited about. And and uh, we're also doing a musical that will start rehearsals in a couple of months in, in Los Angeles. <clears throat> the musical uh, takes place in over a weekend in 1979. And in reality, in 1979, there was a, an affair at the Waldorf Astoria here in New York. Uh, it was a black tie event, 1,500 people, uh, 53 people on the dais, and they were on, it was honoring Carson uh, as Entertainer of the Year. It was a Friars Club event for Entertainer of the Year. And so that event, Bob Hope was the host, okay? Then, in the musical, we're calling the musical Here's Johnny, not Here's Johnny, it's just Here's Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> and John Rivers is the host instead of uh, Bob Hope. And it's uh, designed to be 90 minutes of pure entertainment, no psychodrama like in my book or like people write about Carson and all of his uh, failings, if you will. It's it's designed to be pure entertainment to, to show the audience what a brilliant uh, entertainer he was, what a powerful figure he was in the entertainment world and all of the uh, giant stars of the then day that he intersected with uh, will be in the show. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield, for example, Lucille Ball, Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, Robin Williams, Jonathan Winters, Mel Brooks, <laughs> they're all gonna be populating the show at one point or another. And again, it's it's uh, to have great humor, to have great music. All the music is original, uh, and uh, my writing partner and I are almost finished with it. And we should be finished by the by mid March. And rehearsals in LA will start sometime in April, I believe. In his first book, Henry Bushkin talks about Johnny Carson having two big issues. Not only the abuse of alcohol, but the fact he was a womanizer. In fact, things got so bad, at one point there was actually a mob hit on his life. And many strings had to be pulled to save his life. This was not a unique situation for Johnny Carson. You know, Carson uh, was a womanizer. There's no... There's no question about that uh he always felt he had to be married so that whenever he's going to an event it was not who is he taking who is he dating so he always wanted to be married uh, uh it, <laughs> he excelled at small talk okay uh with his guests uh but if you if you met him and you didn't know him and you try to engage in small talk with him, he would be uh, out the door. I mean, he just wasn't very comfortable with strangers or with people he really didn't know. Uh, I mean, he had issues with his children. He had issues 
of sorts with his parents. Uh, he had issues with many friends, including me, that were no longer friends. You know, because his tolerance level was was pretty uh, pretty low when it came to people he thought were. Uh, not being loyal to him, including me, I suppose. It, you had a great, um, or I found a very interesting interview with Joan Rivers um, at the time the book came out. And both you and Joan Rivers had similar, for different reasons, similar issues where you, you didn't really connect with him after he kind of <sighs> shut you out. And you both talked about it. And it was interesting, her and your assessment of it, but you both kind of just, understood that's the way he was but we reached out to him uh at the, when his son his son died and both of you reached out to him but he, both of you really got essentially negative responses like a, a secretary answered or whatever but not from him exactly uh the secretary uh who you just referred to was a uh, secretary in my law firm uh, and the lawyer, the partner in my law firm, who was general, then went over to Carson Productions as general counsel, her secretary became his secretary uh, right up until the time he died, I think. It, uh, it, Joan Rivers was a unique case because she was the permanent guest host. Uh, we worked out a, a rather uh, attractive deal for everybody, and we didn't have to worry about guest hosts anymore. She would step in, and lo and behold, without her knowledge, she made a deal with Fox, uh, and and Carson didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. I got a call one morning, early one morning, about the fact that. Uh, and there's going to be a release about her signing with Fox. I called Carson to let him know, and uh, from that time on, he never spoke to her again. He really felt screwed by her. He really felt that she went really behind his back when he was so uh, uh, so much a fan of hers. Is that Carson? <sighs> was so much uh, more of a individual as opposed to just an entertainer that they see on, that they saw on television every night for 30 years. I mean, uh, he, he was one of the original people who transferred from radio to television seamlessly in the late 40s, the early 50s. Uh, he was working at, in radio in Omaha in 1949, just after he got married to, to uh, his first wife, Jody. And all of a sudden, from a radio show, he had a 15-minute television show, local in Omaha. And, and he did everything. He wrote it. He, he starred in it. He hired the guests. The, the band, the band was an organ player. He had an organ player who would do the intro. Uh, 
So he was one of the true pioneers of, of, of the transition from radio to television. And indeed, all of his uh, staffing in the early days came from radio. The radio guys transitioned into television. And by 1955, he had his own network show in Los Angeles. It's called the Johnny Carson Show. It lasted for one season. Uh, it, it had terrible ratings. Uh, so he failed at that technically, but he caught the attention of many people. And two years later, he had a show in New York called Who Do You Trust? in 1957. And five years later, he had The Tonight Show in 1962. So his... his uh, rise in television was not meteoric by any means oh sure i think i think that's a great part of his success he was able to listen uh and and let the guests shine uh rodney dangerfield for example if if he was on a roll it could be eight minutes before he was finished and carson would let that happen. In 1968, I'll give you another example. In 1968, uh, right in the middle of the civil rights movement, he gave Harry Belafonte a week on his show. Harry Belafonte was a guest, was the guest host for a week in 1968. And he had Martin Luther King on, he had Robert Kennedy on, he had every civil rights activist on that show, which in the history of the civil rights movement, a lot of people will say was one of the defining moments in 1968 when Carson was generous enough to, to let Belafonte have the show for a week. One of the most dramatic aspects of Johnny Carson's career is actually the fact that when he stopped, when he went off the air in 1992, People saw very little of him. He essentially retired. But did he do it voluntarily? And was it a happy retirement? Henry Bushkin gives his insight. Oh, I think I think it was medically uh, induced meaning that during my day, uh, I think it might have been 1986, could have been 1987, he had a, a, a heart uh, procedure done. Uh, it was a, there was some blockage and they put the balloon in and it, I forget the name of the procedure. Uh, but from 1987 on, uh, and again, I wasn't with him after 88, I, I think medically he was, he was suffering. And uh, he died from emphysema, from smoking. <clears throat> and so I think the, the fact that uh, nobody knew uh, anything about Carson's private life after he left, because he was so rarely seen, I think it had to, a great deal had to do with his health and with, with a combination of heart problems and lung problems that caused him to sort of fade into the background. And he died on his on his yacht all alone. He was there with a crew of 
eight or nine on on the boat and and Johnny, that was it. Um, he died. He he got sick on the boat. They they brought in a helicopter, took him to Cedars, where he died. And and so I think sadly the fact that he left the air in 1992 and died in 2005. Those 13 years, I think, were difficult health-wise. In many ways, Johnny Carson is like an iceberg. You can see hundreds of hours of Johnny Carson and think you know all about him. But it's the personality under the surface that makes up most of Johnny Carson and who he is. And it's the personality under the surface that we know very little about. Thanks to Henry Bushkin, we know quite a bit more than we used to. Thanks for watching.